for the next two Sundays after today, our focus is going to be on the mission of the church beyond our own family. Now, that's caused me to do uh, a good bit of thinking and praying over the past several weeks about my own priorities as a pastor and about the priorities of our church here at Bethlehem. One fact that has pressed itself upon me from several different sides that I think every local church has to reckon with is this. I'll put it in the words of Ralph Winter, who is the director of the United States Center for World Mission in Pasadena. He wrote in 1978, We may do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the whole Bible, that unless and until, in faith, the future of the world becomes more important than the future of the church, the church has no future. As Jesus put it, the most dangerous thing you can do is to seek to save your life. Thus, continuing from Winter, to turn it around backwards, world evangelization is the only future of the church. Every church in history that has not reached out has gone down. Couple this fact with the logical statement that to whom much is given of him much will be required and world evangelization is no longer an option in which the superzealous grain gain brownie points. It suddenly appears to be and must actually become the central and fundamental concern of the evangelical movement or there will be no future for that movement. That's the end of the quote. The words of Jesus, if you would seek to save your life, you will lose it. And if you lose it for the sake of me and the gospel, have an application to the universal church, to denominations, to local churches, and to individuals. We've got it on Jesus' authority. The universal church will never fail. It will endure to the end. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will always move his true people to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. But we have no promise that any given denomination or local church or individual will endure to the end. Whether we will endure to the end hangs on whether the Baptist General Conference and Bethlehem Baptist Church and you and I lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. And that has financial implications, it has time implications, and it may have vocational implications for any of us. Now, I thought as I prayed about what I might preach on the Sunday before Missions Week, and what the Lord seemed to impress upon me was the need to say something about the first stage of mission, namely our own personal readiness to testify to our hope. And I think this is important because we have need around us in these Twin Cities, don't we? In my neighborhood, the gospel has not swept everybody away. And there's also a need in this sense. If we aren't 
joyfully engaged at the personal level, probably there will be a great inhibition for enthusiasm for world mission. If you don't love those you see, how can you love those you have not seen? So I have chosen to speak from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16, especially verses 14 and 15. 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15. And I do want you to look at those with me if you have a Bible, because we will treat them in some detail. We'll read together again verses 13 to 16 of 1 Peter 3. Now, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? Very optimistic question, and then he qualifies it quickly. But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, quoting the Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be troubled, but reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts, ready always to make a case to everyone who asks you for a reason concerning the hope which is in you. But do it with meekness and fear, having a good conscience in order that whenever they speak evil of you, those who abuse your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What does it mean to be ready always to make a case for your hope? What is this readiness? How do we go about getting and staying ready to make a case for our hope? As I pondered that question, another text came to my mind From the words of Jesus, do you remember that in Luke 21, near the end of Jesus' life, he warned the disciples that one day, very soon, people were going to persecute them, hand them over to prison, drag them before kings and governors, and then he said to them, in Luke 21, 12, this will be a time for you to witness. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand how to make your case. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, the least we can say from that text is this. There is a wrong way to get ready to make a case for your hope. Right? Whatever it is, there is a wrong way. And Jesus is warning against it. And when I read that, I said to myself, I've got to be very careful, lest I find myself commending from 1 Peter 3 that you all do something Jesus says you shouldn't do. And so I was hard put now to decide what Peter meant by get ready and stay ready to give an answer when people asked you, about the hope that is in you. Peter says, always be ready to make a case for your hope. Jesus says, don't meditate beforehand on how to make a case for your hope. Which makes the question all the more crucial, what is this readiness and how do we get it? Now, the clue that I found that I think opened the door 
to new insight into what 1 Peter 3.15 means was the relationship between the statement, be ready, and what comes just before it, namely, reverence Christ in your hearts. If you have the King James Version or the New American Standard Bible, you will notice that the little verb be or being in the phrase be ready or being ready is in italics, which means it ain't there in the Greek. Literally, the text reads, reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts, ready always. No verb, just ready always to make a case for your hope. And what that makes plain is that there is a very close connection between reverencing Christ in your hearts and making a case for your hope. Indeed, as we analyze what it means to reverence Christ in your heart, we'll see there's an astonishingly close connection. Now, one key to understanding what it means to reverence Christ in our hearts is to notice, moving backwards in the text, that it is the alternative to fearing what men fear. Verse 14, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. So, don't fear what men fear and don't be troubled, but instead, the alternative, reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts. In other words, don't be afraid of the sorts of things men are afraid of, like their threats and persecutions. Instead, hallow or reckon as holy or reverence the the Lord Christ in your hearts. So, reverencing Christ in our hearts as Lord must mean something hopeful and uh, encouraging. It must be something that breeds confidence and hope rather than fear. And that, you see, makes it plain that there is a close connection between reverencing Christ in your heart and being always ready to make a case for your hope. Reverence the Lord Christ in your heart is the way to get ready to make a case for your hope. Now, to help make this clearer, let's picture this text as a sandwich. These two two pieces of bread here. The top piece of bread of this sandwich says, don't be afraid of what men can do to you. Don't be afraid of what men fear and don't be troubled. The bottom piece of bread says, Always be ready to make a case for your hope. Now compare these two pieces of bread and see how similar they are. The top piece of bread says, don't be afraid. But in order not to be afraid, you've got to have some reason to hope. The bottom piece of bread says, make a case for your hope. But in order to make a case for your hope, you've got to have some reason to hope. So they're both really commanding the same thing. Do what you need to do in order to get a good, solid reason to hope. And then, I think the meat in the middle here of the sandwich gives the way to get that reason. It says, reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts. How do you get rid of fear of men so that you're not troubled? Answer, reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts. How can you always be ready to make a case for your hope when men ask you about it? Answer, reverence the Lord Christ in your heart. 
That's the only way, according to this text, to be ready to make a case for your hope on the one hand and to be fearless towards men on the other. So the big question is, what is this reverencing the Lord Christ in our hearts? What's this amazing thing that has the power to turn the fear of men into hope and the power always to give us a reason for the hope that is in us that we can speak to others. Now, to answer that question in accord with the immediate context, what we need to do instead of importing our ideas in there and say, well, everybody knows what reverence is, is to notice what Peter's doing. Peter is quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And I'd like you to look at that with me. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. He's taken this quote that God gave to Isaiah for his day, and he's adapted it for his own situation. God gave Isaiah a warning in these verses about how he should feel about his adversaries, and about how he should feel about the Lord God. We'll start reading at verse 11 of Isaiah 8, and you'll hear immediately the similarity to 1 Peter. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but reverence the Lord of hosts. Let him be your fear, And let him be your dread. You can see clearly that Peter was alluding to this text. Not an exact quotation, but an adaptation for his own situation. God had warned Isaiah, don't fear what men fear. Fear me. Reverence me in your hearts. Peter takes it, adapts it to the people who are being persecuted in his own day and says, don't fear what men fear. Reverence the Lord Christ. He puts Jesus right in the place of Jehovah in the Old Testament, which is done more than once in the New Testament. So, if we can find out what Isaiah meant by reverencing or regarding as holy or sanctifying, depending on which translation you have, the Lord in his heart then will have a sound and solid foundation for determining what Peter meant when he said, reverence the Lord Christ in your hearts. Now, verse 14 of Isaiah 8 makes it very clear what Isaiah means by reverence God. It means fear him instead of fearing men or dread him instead of dreading men. It says, reverence the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. So that's Isaiah's or God's explanation of what it means to reverence the Lord in your heart. But now, probably, if, if you're really with me, you're saying, but surely God doesn't want his chosen people to walk around filled with the emotion of fear towards God. That wouldn't be a very exciting invitation, but only one of misery. But that's not what God meant here and we can see that it's not what God meant if we just look at the next phrase in verse 14 where he promises that those who do fear him for them he will become a sanctuary 
And then there, he goes on and talks about what he will become for those who don't believe him, but he will become for those who fear him a sanctuary. Now, a sanctuary is a place where you feel peace and security and hope. So I don't think it would be fair to say this text is teaching that we're always cringing when God is our God. That sounds kind of paradoxical. Let God be your dread and he will become your sanctuary. But that's what it says. But it's not really as paradoxical as it seems if we take verse 14 to mean not be filled with the emotion of fear towards God all the time, but rather take it to mean something like this. If you reverence God, you will consider the prospect of displeasing him as a more fearful prospect than displeasing men. That's what it means to let the Lord be your fear. The prospect of offending or displeasing God will be a more dreadful or a more fearful prospect to you than worrying about what men can do to you. The degree of Isaiah's reverence for God was the same as the degree of his desire not to displease God. Now, what in this particular context in Isaiah 8 displeased God? What here in these several verses did God want Isaiah to avoid? Because it would have displeased him. And the answer is given in verse 12. Do not fear what they fear and do not be in dread. God would have been displeased with Isaiah if Isaiah had feared men or feared what men could do to him. Why? Why is God so displeased when we, his people, fear men? Why does that offend God? Isn't the answer this? He has made promise upon promise upon promise that he would take care of us and if we believe those promises, it should take away fear of men. It should fill us with confidence and hope if we believe those promises. But if we fear men, then it's a sign, isn't it, that we're not believing those promises to take care of us. And when you don't believe an honest man, he ought to be offended and displeased because you don't trust him. And so it is with God. God had said to Isaiah, for example, in chapter 41, fear not. And he gives some reasons. For I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I will help you. You can just see God pleading with Isaiah and the people of Israel, for goodness sakes, believe me. Chapter 35, say to those who are fearful, who are, have a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense. He will come and save you. 
Now, there are many, many such promises in Isaiah and in the whole Old Testament. And therefore, if Isaiah fears the threats of men, he is casting his vote against the trustworthiness of God. And he does not reverence God in his heart. But if he does not fear men, but instead fears to displease God and thus trusts in God's promises, then he is reverencing God in his heart. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter and see what light this sheds on our questions there. The background of Isaiah 8 shows, I think, that the teaching of 1 Peter 3.15 about reverencing the Lord in our hearts means this. Reverencing the Lord Christ means, in general, fearing more to displease Christ than we fear the threats of men. Or, to be more specific, since the thing that displeases Christ most is unbelief or a failure to trust Him, therefore, reverencing Christ means setting our minds on the promises that He's given us in the Gospel and trusting them with all our hearts. That's what it means to reverence Christ. Promises like 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Or a few verses later in 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. Believe those promises in your heart and you will be reverencing the Lord Christ. So now let's go back briefly to the sandwich. The top piece of bread, verse 14, says, Don't fear human threats. The bottom piece of bread, verse 15, says, Always be ready to make a case for your hope. And the meat here in the middle uh, tells us how to do it. Namely, reverence the Lord Christ in your heart. That is, set your mind on the glorious promises that God will take care of you. And if you do that and don't fear men, then you will be reverencing Christ. And on the one hand, your fear will be turned to hope. And on the other hand, you will always have an answer to give to those who ask a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this conclusion has proved to me this week tremendously exciting and liberating. And I want to try to, in conclusion, tell you why. It's come to me more clear than it's ever been before that the main, I don't know if it's the main, maybe it is, I think it is, the main reason, or one very strong reason, why we have such a hard time being natural and free in bearing witness to our hope is that we don't feel very hopeful. Isn't that the main reason that it doesn't just bubble out in conversation? We just don't feel very hopeful. And if our hearts are not full of hope, in the promises of Christ, here's what happens when an occasion for witness approaches. 
we sense it as a duty to defend doctrine, not as a delight to tell other people why we're so full of hope. Isn't that true? I saw like I'd never seen before that witnessing will always be a burdensome duty wherever Christianity is merely the acceptance of a list of doctrines and the keeping of a list of do's and don'ts. But so many of us in the church have simply inherited motions of church life and outward morality and piety and the heartfelt reality of Christ and the joyful brimming up of hope in His promises is foreign. You don't know what I'm talking about. So how in the world then can you obey the command of 1 Peter to give a reason for the hope that's in you? Not any doctrine. Such people can always make a case for a doctrine. Any unbeliever can make a case for a doctrine. But they will not and cannot make a case for the hope that is in them. Because it isn't in them. Now, what this means, just as the text says, is that the best way, and this was what was exciting for me to discover, the best way to get ready to make a case for your hope is to get hopeful. Get hopeful. Isn't that simple? It just simplified things so much. I didn't have to think in terms of apologetics classes and reading lots of books. Get hopeful. That's all I have to do in order to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in me. Don't meditate beforehand to try to answer somebody else's questions. Apply yourself to settling the questions that are always rising up in your own hearts. Isn't that what we need to do first and every day? We have to find for ourselves reason enough to be filled with hope. Reason enough to turn fear into hope. If hope isn't springing up within our hearts from things that Christ said to us and things that He did for us, it's going to be a mere sham when we try to say a word of defense to anybody else. It'll ring so tinny and they'll know and that's why we aren't very inclined to do it, isn't it? But if we search out the promises of Christ in the whole Bible and use them to banish our own fears and to kindle our own hope, then when we reverence Christ in this way, we will have made the best possible preparation, won't we, for giving a reason to others for the hope that is brimming within us. That was an exciting and liberating discovery for me because it simplifies things so much. And if it's true, then our primary activity to get ready to make a case for our hope is to stay happy in God. That's your number one task if you want to be a witness for Jesus. Stay happy in God. Morning by morning, go to the Word. Not anxiously to amass arguments for every possible rebuttal that somebody might give you that day. That's what Jesus was against when He said, 
don't think beforehand what to say. He didn't want us to be anxious and always trying to stay one step ahead of somebody's arguments. No. We go to the Word because we're so desperately needy. We've got fears that have to be overcome. We've got hope that's waning. We've got doubts that have to be answered. And unless we can take care of our own heart and get it full and brimming with the hope that Christ gives, it's all over for witness. The fight of faith is waged on our knees with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. And when we come out of that encounter with the living God, encouraged, renewed, and refreshed by the promises of the Scripture, we will be ready to make a case for our hope to anyone who asks us. Because the only case God wants you to make to anybody is the reasons why you yourself are hoping this very day.